Good morning, College Park. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's begin our time together with prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you every hour, and this hour is no different. God, would you be in our midst to help us to hear to understand, to believe, and then to obey your word solely by the power of your Holy Spirit because this is something we can't muster up by ourselves. We're so glad to be here more than any other place on earth right now to hear a word from heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, College Park. It is a joy to be with all of you this morning. Um, I don't know about you guys, but it's also been a joy to kind of get the tour this summer through the book of Philippians, and I have just felt like it has been a smorgasbord of teaching from the pastors of our church, getting to hear section after section of God's word spoken by the godly men that are the leaders of our church, and that I am just so honored to be counted amongst the staff of this very special place. What a joy. And it's also kind of a unique weekend in that this is the perfect timing for this passage. It's a great weekend to be talking about what it means to be citizens. Because probably at least some of us have been spending this last week cheering on, you know, our international soccer team to defeat. I know, I'm still grieving that loss. I mean, I eat Belgian waffles for a while, but it's okay. And then this past weekend, seeing explosions in the sky, celebrating the liberty and the rights and the privileges that we have because of the people who have shaped our country and because of the people who have protected our country. But today, we're actually going to talk about something a little bit different, something that doesn't really have to do at all with the United States. We're going to talk about what it means to be citizens of heaven. So turn with me, if you would, one more time to our passage, if you're not already there. And let me read again for us, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. We're going to chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. 
and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. From this text this morning, we can see one big idea. One big invitation from the Apostle Paul and from God through his word, and that's, let's be model citizens. And what does it mean to be this kind of citizen? Well, there's two marks of citizens of heaven. We have privileges and we have responsibilities. So let's talk about the first mark. Model citizens have privileges. And we'll find that right in the middle of our passage in verses 20 and 21. Right at the heart of our passage is where Paul's drawing a contrast. It's a painful contrast because it says he's crying in verse 18. But here's the positive end of it. Let me read to you what he says about identity in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul explicitly points out a couple privileges, two of them. One of them is we have a powerful Savior, don't we? You may recall from our previous sermons this summer that Philippi, this city that the Christians are here living in for this letter, it's a colony of Rome. And it's pretty Romish. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to make it up today. Philippi is pretty Romish. They have, they have Latin inscriptions all over the place. They have a forum. In fact, a lot of the people that lived there were Roman military veterans. And so where maybe other cities might feel like they were kind of a small fish in a big pond, Philippi knows they're part of the big fish. Because if anything weird, anything wrong, anything in opposition to their ruler goes down in Philippi, they know they have a big bad Caesar 800 miles away who can stretch out his arm and crush the opposers. He's powerful and he's able to save. And that's the analogy that Paul is trying to draw out for these citizens of the more powerful and the more beautifully saving Jesus. He's the one and only powerful Savior. He has power, as verse 21 states, to subject all things to himself. We hear these things in Scripture about Christ. In him, all things hold together. And he is before all things. All things will be brought under his feet. Every knee will bow to him in heaven and earth and under the earth, right? That's just a little bit earlier in the same letter. Jesus is all-powerful. And all the universe operates under him, right? He's alive, right? He didn't resurrect just to die again. He's living and he's reigning. But he's not just powerful, He's a savior. 
The picture here is not that we'll fly away, O glory, right? Which you're probably glad I spared you from my singing voice this morning. That's not the picture here exactly in the passage. It's that the Savior is coming to save. Jesus is coming to establish the new heavens and new earth to allow us to reign with him. And in case you saw that word wait in there, we await a savior and you were wondering what that meant. That might be something else that we need to kind of flip on its head because we're not just passively waiting for him. Our citizenship means, and the Philippians would have known this, what does a citizen do? Just like if they were citizens of Rome, he permeates the influence of the kingdom everywhere he lives. This is an active waiting until our Savior comes back. As citizens of heaven, we have privileges to a king that's the most powerful and the most willing to save. He's promised that he'll do so. But we also have another privilege. We have a glorious body. And I'm not talking to those of you who have been kind of setting goals this summer to get into the gym, right, and make this hunk of flesh the best that it can be, right? The promise here is a glorious body that goes way beyond those summer expectations, right? And I won't bring that up either because I don't know how you're doing with those goals. I'm not doing so hot. But here we have a promise about it. Paul's been, been drawing attention to bodies kind of throughout this passage, He's already said in verse 19, there's these enemies and their, their focus is on the flesh in the here and now. But there's a different privilege that our bodies have. He said, nowhere in the Bible says it perhaps better than Romans 8. It says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, But we, ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Heaven is not a disembodied experience where we're going to float in and out of clouds like ghosts, right? I, I grew up watching some Tom and Jerry cartoons like some others, right? That's not the way it's going to be. God cares about our bodies. He cares so much that there's a promise of him transforming them, making them brand spanking new when his son returns. And it's in those bodies that we'll get to work and we'll get to play and we'll get to sing and we'll get to worship the Lord forever and ever. Amen. C.S. Lewis has really captured my imagination about the idea of an embodied heavenly existence in a little fiction book that he wrote called The Great Divorce. In it, he describes this parade of glorified saints like this. Long after that, I saw people coming to meet us. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant. And at first, I didn't know that they were people at all. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. A tiny haze and a sweet smell went up where they'd crushed the grass and scattered the dew. Some were naked, some were robed. But the naked ones did not seem less adorned. 
and the robes didn't disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Some were bearded, but no one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. One gets glimpses, even in our country, of that which is ageless. And here, it was all like that. What a splendid future awaits us as citizens of heaven who will be saved and glorious in bodies with our king forever. Unfortunately, perhaps some of us have forgotten about our privileges as citizens. And we need the picture of the future held up right in front of our face. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves from a future perspective. Because Jesus saves is a promise of the future. What he will do on that day of judgment. So when the past starts to replay in your mind about your own guilt or about the the difficulties that you've suffered, remember, we await a savior. Or when you're immersed in the present circumstances, so much so that you feel it takes everything in you just to paddle up for a gasp of air, remember, we await a savior. That savior is going to End all evil. And he will reward you and he will reward me with a glorified body and an existence that not even C.S. Lewis can imagine. These privileges are great, aren't they? And frankly, you might be saying, you know, if our sermon stopped here, we could just kind of skip on home reveling in the delights of the future promise. Hooray! But our passage doesn't end there. And I'm glad it doesn't because it helps put into context our here and now citizenship while we await the future coming Savior and his kingdom. For example, if if you were a dad, if you were a father and you were talking to your son, you wouldn't just tell him, you know, son, I'll, I'll love you no matter what the circumstance. I'll always be there to help you if you need me. And heck, I'll even pay for all of your education. You know, it's it's a great deal, but a good real-life father would probably also have something else to say. Not just the privileges of being my son, but, you know, there's some responsibilities, too, for you as part of this family that I'm going to help you live up to. And what do you know? The Apostle Paul allows our privileges to lead to the second mark of us being model citizens. Our responsibilities. Model citizens do have responsibilities. And here we find this second mark in the remaining verses of our passage. We find it in 317 through 19, and we also see it in 4 verse 1. So let's talk about these couple of responsibilities that we have under the Lord. The first responsibility is staying followers. And here we see this in verses 17 through 19. This is what verse 17 says. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul's inviting his friends in Philippi to come, stay followers of him and the people who are like him. Now, I have an older sister who is one of the funniest people 
that I have ever met. And so when she heard that an improv comedy troupe was coming down from Chicago to Indianapolis, where both of us live, she was quick to snatch up tickets and quick to bring me along. But the thing was, this wasn't just a performance of comedy. There was actually lessons before the performance. So here I find myself with my hilarious sister in the midst of this classroom with professional comedians whose task it's going to be to teach us how to be funny. So one of the ways they do that is to have us stand up and do an exercise. So we're in a couple and they say, okay, person number one, you need to move your, your face and your body in whatever motions you want. And then person number two, that was me, you need to be a mirror to them. And in the same time that they're doing it, you need to move too. So I find myself following after my hilarious sister with her you know, face contortions and moving her body. And after about a minute, I notice something. The people in the room are looking at me. And they think I'm hilarious. <laughs> the reason is because I was following my sister. And we become like those we imitate, don't we? That's exactly what Paul's talking about in here, right? Maybe without the facial contortions, but that's exactly what he's talking about. He's kind enough, though, to tell us something, and that is there's a decision to be made when it comes to staying followers. He says there's actually two types of examples that we could follow, and he's good enough to tell us the results of where these examples lead. The first one is in verses 18 and 19. And that's where he says, staying followers of bad examples leads to bad results. Verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and the glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You and I can't help but notice the environment that these Philippians are in, right? Paul says it outright. There are many enemies that were all around these Philippians. They they were surrounded, right? It's like any good, you know, wild western movie worth its salt where the hero is kind of stuck holed up in a saloon with all the window glass panes shot out and all he can hear is the villain with his gang in the street saying, come on out, we've got you surrounded. These Philippians are surrounded. But by whom? Paul calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul's getting just as emotional about these guys as he has been about his Philippian friends this whole letter. As you know, Paul's just been gushing over these fellow saints, you know, throughout these chapters. But then even in verse 4-1, you may have noticed he kind of lavishes on them more doting compliments than even most husbands do their wives, right? Oh, my joy and crown, my beloved. Oh, he loves them. Why? Why does he get so emotionally excited and hyped up about the Philippians? It's because they love Jesus. In 126, it says it's because they glory in Jesus. And since they love the one that Paul loves, he couldn't be more happy about them, more rejoicing in them, more loving 
toward them. But, unfortunately, they're not the only people around. And Paul's anguished and he's weeping. There there might be tear stains on this letter to the Philippians because there's others who are enemies of the one that Paul loves. And it breaks his heart. But they're not just enemies of the person. They're enemies of the path. It says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This means that their problem wasn't fundamentally doctrinal, like perhaps you might read a lot in his letter to the Galatians, there was a wrong belief, as much as it was, they had a problem with their lifestyle. They walked in a way that was fundamentally opposed to the way of the cross. That was what's at issue. Now, it's hard to determine exactly who these enemies were that Paul's referring to based on what he says just in this passage. Were they Judaizers who said that things like circumcision and law-keeping were still religious requirements for Christians? Or were they libertines who said that following your sensual appetites is still totally okay for Christians to do? Well, I think regardless of whether it's talking about their religious requirements or their sensuality, the point of it, these enemies, is their focus. Their focus is on the earth. It's on the here and now. They're on the wrong half of Jesus' axiom that says whoever will save his life will lose it. And they're abandoning the way of the cross and the promise that whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 19 says this. Their end is destruction. That's the end for those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. We have to cling to the cross of Christ if we want to escape destruction. But then it gives kind of a more full-bodied description of them in verse 19. It says, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What a description. Their God is their belly. Right? Now, does this mean that before meals, they're saying, Oh, mighty belly, enjoy this delicious burrito I'm about to feed to you. May it be for your good and my good. Amen. No, no, actually, that's not, that's not at all what they're saying. And please don't do that when you go to lunch after service today. You're very much going to weird out your friends and your family that you're with. It's not applying the text. It simply means that their focus is on this body, in this world. It's as if their body is their own, to use it as they please. Whatever they want, whether it's for religious standing, or whether it's to indulge their greedy wants. And we're all tempted to do this, aren't we? We're all tempted to say that our bodies are our own. But who do our bodies belong to? This is what 1 Corinthians 6 says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Brothers and sisters, we're twice owned by God. God created us and then he bought us back from our enslavement to sin. By the precious blood of his son, by the way. And so we're in a position to say, no, 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 no. My belly is God's, not my God is my belly. Verse 19 goes on to say, they glory in their shame. This involves holding shameful things up for attention and not holding up God or his wonderful grace as glorious. And obviously, as it continues to say, their minds are set on earthly things. They're consumed with the here and now. And they give no thought to what's beyond this life or the one who rules above this life. Everything is earth, earth, earth. Body, body, body. Now, now, now. These people are examples of Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This constellation of attributes here outlines men and women who are dangerous and deadly examples for God's people. These are men and women who are promoters of the opposite way of life than the way of the cross. Their focus is here and it's now. And here's the bad news. Aren't we too often lured like fish to follow these bad examples? We should oppose them. We should grieve over them like Paul does. But instead we find ourselves inching toward these bad examples because of their attraction. We we walk out of that western saloon and we give up our guns and we say, I'm done with the way of the cross. I, I would much rather have my earnings and my standing done by me now in this life. Or I'd much rather take my pleasure right now, if you please. I'm over the long haul. I want it here and now. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof, and you know this, is the way of death. Thankfully, Paul also gives us a second example. In verse 17, he says that staying followers of good examples leads to good results. So let's go there. Here's good news for us. In verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul and his cohorts aren't mere teachers, they're models. They have the same attitude toward the Philippians here as they did, Paul did to the Thessalonians when he writes, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves. Because you had become very dear to us. They model a life that looks like a cross. They're they're faithfully suffering. They're enriched with joy. And they're looking forward to the promise of reward. In this very letter, we see the examples. We see this in Paul. 
We see this in Epaphroditus. We see this in Timothy. They indeed are model citizens. You you may remember just a few weeks back when Pastor Nate unpacked from chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And in it, he laid out a couple of guys, one of whom name, if you can pronounce, good for you. You know, you deserve a sticker. Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they said they were looking out for number one, but that number one was not themselves. And to their examples, Paul then in chapter three, as we've been hearing these last couple of weeks, adds his own example. So at this point, you're probably saying, all right, Bob, get on with it. What exactly is the example that these guys and others are giving to us to emulate? We want it. Give it to us. All right. Thank you. Sincerity, sacrifice, striving. That's the way of the cross. And and, and in fact, all three of these guys model all three of them. But let me just go ahead and tie one to each because I think it'll be clearer that way. Let's look at Timothy's sincerity. And you can find it in chapter 2, verse 20, if you want to go there. Here's a description of sincere Timothy. 2.20 For I have no one like him, Paul says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul was looking for somebody who could go minister to the Philippians. He wanted someone who had Christ on the brain and them in their heart so that he could go serve them and he didn't find anybody except sincere Timothy. How's our sincerity going? How's our heart with which we serve others? So if you, if you think of somebody this week that is particularly close to you, maybe for moms, it's one of your kids. For husbands, maybe it's your wife. For singles, maybe it's your roommate, someone you spend a lot of time with and do life with. For kids, maybe it's your brother, it's your sister. Think back this week. Because I know there was some opportunity that you had to serve them, right? Especially on a holiday weekend. I'm sure there was some way you got to serve them. When you served them, was it out of a sincere love? Or was it just because something needed done? There's a difference there in the kingdom of God, isn't there? We need to test our hearts as well as our actions. And even for those of us who are in the workplace with our employees, how sincere are we, are, are we in how we care for others? Right? Are we letting our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and what? Not just praise us, but give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Let's become citizens who are sincere as we serve. We can also look to Epaphroditus' sacrifice. And we see a summary of him in verse 30 of chapter 2. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, Paul says, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You may remember the story about Epaphroditus, that he came from the church of Philippi and traveled quite a distance to serve Paul, probably in house arrest in Rome. And in the midst of that, he got deadly ill. Thankfully, the Lord spared his life. But all along the way, he goes, it's a joy for me to serve my father in the faith, Paul, on behalf of my local church. Even in his circumstances, his main concern was, oh, guys, I hope you don't worry about my illness. I'm okay. 
and the Lord's being faithful. How are we doing at real life sacrifice? And I say real life sacrifice because sometimes we can have the tendency to be very grandiose. Oh, sometime in the future, my goal is going to be to this big, rich, huge sacrifice. No, no, no. In the grit of daily life, how are you doing at just laying down your interests so that God's work gets done? Probably most of you here are familiar with some of the vaunted metaphors about marriage, right? Wedded bliss, right? Wonderful. Probably the same amount of people are familiar with the, the more unsavory, you know, metaphors for marriage, you know, being with the old ball and chain, which I suggest none of you use. Not a good idea. My favorite is the term, the bloodless martyrdom of marriage. The white martyrdom of marriage. And the reason why I love that, even being a not married yet person, is because it embeds fundamentally in a marriage the idea of sacrifice that is just the symbol of healthy marriages. So whether it's husbands helping to kind of mulch the lawn for your wife, that's sacrifice. And God sees it. Right? Or whether it's wives carrying some of the heavy burdens of your husband, that's sacrifice. And God sees it. But even beyond just marriage sacrifice, we all have opportunities for this to be like a little mini Epaphroditus. Right? Prepping for small group, even if you were exhausted and weary after a week, is sacrifice that God sees and rewards. Speaking Christ's perspective into an issue, even though you know the people around that table really are far from God and aren't interested in Christianity, that's a sacrifice. Putting down my interests to see that God's work gets done. God rewards that. Well, let's also look at Paul as the third guy here. Paul's striving happens to be just in the few verses right before our passage. So look at verse 12 with me, if you would. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, Paul says. He wants to dispel that myth. I am not perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's striving forward toward Christ's likeness until he gets to see Christ. That's why Paul's not egotistical here. Because you may have thought from verse 17, well, that's kind of arrogant, isn't it? That he comes right out of the gates and says, why don't you guys be like me? But in fact, what he's saying is not that much different than what he told the Corinthians when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The best way I can summarize Paul's striving is that he wants to be like Christ until he sees Christ face to face. And Paul's inviting us to strive to the exact same prize. That's what awaits at the finish line. So I just returned from a couple of weekends ago, the Active Adults Retreat. And it was a total treat for me to be there because we got to talk from God's word with folks in their over 20 people in their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, right? I sound like a radio host now. 
They're all there over this retreat talking about finishing strong. How beautiful, right? That's striving to the end. But I will bet that every single person in that room, just like any good runner, would tell you it's not the last mile that's the only one that counts. It's every single leg along the way that helps you get to your goal, it helps you push through the race, and it gets you to the finish line. So I walked away from that retreat time saying, Lord, how am I doing on this leg of my striving? Am I letting weights and sins bear me down? Or am I walking in the freedom with my eyes on Jesus? That's what striving's about. So what can we take away from this responsibility? This responsibility to stay followers. Well, you may look at these guys and you may think to yourself, I can't do that. Right? This is, this is an apostle. And these early church leader guys, and one of these guys, I can't even pronounce his name. How am I supposed to be like them? They're in the Bible. But verse 17 butts up against, the, it says the exact opposite of that inclination. It says that everybody, regardless of your circumstance, if you're a Christian, has the opportunity to become a, not just a citizen as a Christian, but become a model citizen that can follow others and have others follow them. We have the same type of opportunity available to us. And the good news is, we don't have our eyes set on ourselves in this endeavor. Because we can become model citizens as we model Christ. Christ, more than anyone, had sincere compassion on those who were the least likely to come to God. Right? Jesus was striving with every ounce of spirit empowerment for obedience. And Jesus sacrificed his whole body on that deadly lumber to build a bridge between us and God. So that we, by faith, can cross that bridge and are granted his power for sincerity, striving, and sacrifice. So the only way that you could characterize yourself this morning is saying, I am an enemy of the cross of Christ. I'm I'm living for this world. Then by all means, let us pray for you. Let us pray with you, even after the service, that you would cling to that cross that you've been pushing away from. But if you're a saint of any stripe, struggling or afflicted, or even if you're deeply satisfied, stay following after Christ so that someone could look at you and they could say, I have no one like him. They could say, she risked her life for me. Or he is pressing toward a goal. That's what it means to stay a follower. But there's also a second responsibility that Paul's tacked on here at the end of our passage. And verse 4-1 gives us this second responsibility. He says that model citizens also stand firm. Philippians 4-1 simply says, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now you may be wondering, why did I tack on... 4 1. Isn't that the end of the passage? Isn't this a new chapter? What's going on here? Well, the reason why I tacked it on is because it uses a similar phrase 
from earlier on in Philippians. And I actually think that this is the end bookend of the significant amount of instruction that Paul's been giving in this letter. And I, and I think you'll notice this with me if you go to the passage. So if you have your Bible, flip back to 127. 1 verse 27. Here Paul's just shifted from talking about himself to begin talking to the Philippians and giving them instruction. And he's going to continue to do that up through our passage. But this is what 127 says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, now wait just a minute, because probably most of us aren't reading in the Greek, but if you have a footnote, that's really helpful. You may look at that footnote and you may realize that phrase, let your manner of life be worthy, it's the same root word for live as a citizen. Behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. That's the same thing we were talking about, wasn't it? So let's go on just a minute. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's bookended this big instruction by saying, citizens, let's stand firm. We are in this together. Perhaps some of the military veterans that were in that congregation might have even been familiar with this phalanx military formation, right? Where, where in it, this, this tight-knit group of warriors holds up their shield and has their spirit, and with it, they're able to protect part of themselves and part of the person next to them. But because they're so close, they're almost impenetrable, and they can slowly move forward toward their enemy, standing firm together. And that's exactly what, what Paul, that's exactly what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to take it up with the Philippians, to take up our shield of faith, to take the sword of the Spirit and stand together, to link arms together as citizen warriors, knowing that we've already had our marching orders given to us with one another. For those of us who are timid in the battle, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, encourage the faint-hearted. For those who are being tempted, Hebrews 3 says, exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. When one of us has stumbled and has fallen, Galatians 6 says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness and, and keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And when we ourselves feel the battle weariness and, and we just, we want to give up. Galatians 6 also says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Our whole passage today has been in the plural, right? It's hard for us northerners to get this. But if Paul was from the south, he would have said, Y'all stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That's exactly what he would have said. That's what this passage says. And that leads us to all the applications of it. Do do you have accountability in your life? Are Are you invested and involved in a small group? Are you actually a member of this church? Are you plugged in serving somewhere on a, on a team? Do you have a y'all mentality to your faith? Because we need you. Now, I don't know where you're coming from today. 
You may be someone who says, I'm not a citizen of heaven, and you need to turn over from being opposed to Christ to embracing Christ. I encourage you to take that step. Gain his forgiveness. Become a new citizen with new privileges and responsibilities. You may be struggling with sin or you may be in the darkness of your circumstances and you just need a hand on your shoulder that says, stand firm. We are in this together. Or you may be in a place where you need to step up in your own walk of following after Jesus so you can become the person who says, follow me as I follow Christ. God's here. And he's willing to hear the prayers of his citizens, willing to hear the prayers of his people. Because friends, we are. If you're a believer, we are citizens of heaven. So let us live well as model citizens, knowing that we await a savior. And when he comes, he's, he's going to bring us brilliant bodies and he's going to bring us a forever kingdom so that he could say to us on that day together, well done, good and faithful citizens. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we await your King, our Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you've sent him to save us from yesterday's sin, from today's darkness, and from tomorrow's judgment. Thank you for giving us model citizens to follow, some from of old, and God, also some right here and now in this life and in this church Would you help us to follow their footsteps as they follow Christ? And what's more, Lord, would you help us become mature citizens so we, like Paul, can say, follow me as I follow Christ. I pray this for every boy and every girl and every man and every woman and for myself. Bless us here in this church, God, that we may stay followers, we may stand firm as privileged citizens of your kingdom. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good word, Bob. We have some people here that would be glad to talk with you if you have spiritual needs. And, and I did this in all three services. We had three different guys preaching. This, to me, is just one of the great days at College Park. So thanks, Bob, for delivering the word well. This benediction is from the end of Hebrews. And it's one that I would give to Bob as a young pastor, a young minister of the word, and then I'd give it to us as College Park because I think it's appropriate. And it goes like this. It says, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the church says... Amen Amen. and amen. Have a good Sunday. Good Lord's Day worshiping him.